at this point in the retreat, because we are repeatedly coming to the same experience over and over again, we can have simultaneously a feeling of being dropped in and a feeling of vulnerability or irritation or uh, an unsteadiness that both these things can uh, come. So one's strong for a while and then the other, or sometimes they really flash quickly back and forth. And as I mentioned on the, the that first introductory evening, when we get concentrated, whatever comes to possess our mind, we're experiencing in its less diluted, more pure form. So if it's restlessness or an unsteadiness, we are really knowing unsteadiness is like this, restlessness is like this. It's important to remember that as we go through this. And a little inspirational poem to uh, start us out. It's not such an um, easy to understand poem, but it's from Rilke and it's from his sonnets to Orpheus. And it's quite beautiful, at least to me. Quiet friend. Feel the mudita in that. Quiet friend who has come so far. Quiet friend who has come so far. Feel how your breathing makes more space around you. Let this darkness be a bell tower and you, the bell. Quiet friend who has come so far, feel how your breathing makes more space around you. Let this darkness be a bell tower, and you, the bell. As you ring, what batters you becomes your strength. As you ring, what batters you becomes your strength. Move back and forth into the change. What is it like, such intensity of pain? If the drink is bitter, turn yourself to wine. In this uncontainable night, be the mystery at the crossroads of your senses, the meaning discovered there. In this uncontainable night, be the mystery at the crossroads of your senses, the meaning discovered there. And if the world has ceased to hear you, say to the silent earth, I flow. To the rushing water, speak, I am. And if the world has ceased to hear you, say to the silent earth, I flow. To the rushing water, speak, I am. When we come into this kind of concentrated state, we come into the silence and the darkness of our own mind and our own applying to that moment's experience can be our bell ringing. That over and over again in that darkness of our empty mind there we are. It's like a, we're silhouetted in there. We're, we're in a silo. We're, we're, uh, we're there with the heart space, too, as we did this afternoon. We're there, and our very presence is ringing the bell. 
And whatever we encounter becomes our strength. It becomes our strength because we are willing to bear it. Just as in Vipassana, the things we encounter in doing our concentration practice, our willingness to bear them strengthens us. We collect and unify our spirit that can bear. This collecting and unifying our intention to be in this moment, just as it is with the breath. And what do we do when we get pulled off into something with all the intensity of our practice? Our confusion, or an old memory, or uh, a dissatisfaction with the way our practice is going, or something we've got to decide that we don't know how to decide, and, but it just comes in, it's caught us for a moment, or for a sit, or for half a day, whatever it is. Then that experience, too, becomes part it's not separate. There's nothing wrong with that experience. We include those moments of not being collected, not being unified, as part of the experience of being collected. What is, it's the absence is the form of presence. The absence is the form of presence. When there is no collected mind in that moment, through the connection of our intention, the absence becomes the presence. That's how we know it. We know it through its absence. Subtle, but this allows so much more room in our experience. So much more room. It brings us to the mystery of the crossroads of our experience. It's very mysterious, this mind, this heart. It's very mysterious. What is the nature of this reality? It's very mysterious. Are we doing the right thing in any moment? Who knows? Who knows? Does it matter if we're doing the right thing in this moment? Or does what matter the connection, the through line of our intention? Maybe that's more reliable. And so we will meet our experience by showing up in the quietness of the sit, in the quietness of the walking. And our meeting that experience is the ringing of the bell, whatever the experience is. This applies equally to the, to the samadhi practice and to the vipassana in my view. Ajahn Suchito says, when relaxed concentration when we're in relaxed concentration, sorry, I'm saying this wrong, I can't read my writing here. When relaxed concentration naturally occurs, there is this joy of embodied presence. When relaxed concentration naturally occurs, there is this joy of embodied presence. Embodied presence. We are here, now, here, here. The mind's collected and unified. There's an ease in the mind. And that very presence that comes from being collected and unified has its own joy. This is this pleasure, this contentment that Sally and, and, and Temple have pointed us to in these last couple of nights so beautifully. Just being here, just being here, it, this the embodied presence, this collected and unified mind, creates its own kind of joy. 
And ultimately it is from that joy that we will practice Vipassana, from that joy. So there's, um, uh, we're, we're not, uh, when we start feeling grim and doing this practice, when you feel like, I've got to bear down, that's not it. I will be talking about a little more application of will in a few minutes. But that application of will has a gentleness to it, a real gentleness, because we remember what we're about, this intention of, of the heart to be present so it has choice. Choice of what? Choice to choose non-suffering over suffering. We have emphasized relaxation, having a relaxed mind, as we have gone through this a lot, because we've seen in these uh, 10 previous years of doing this retreat, the amount of tension, the amount of stress, the amount of, of striving that can come. But we're always looking to find that right balance between a relaxed mind and a clear uh, 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 application of the practice. And it's, it's a, for each of us, it's not that easy a balance when we're on retreat, no matter how much experience we have. So how do we firm up our practice a little bit in this point in a retreat? Because we've got a fair amount of momentum going. Whatever degree of uh, your experiencing of your collected and unified mind, there is an underlying part that is not visible to us, that is also there. And there's momentum. No matter how distracted you feel or how collected you feel, there is momentum. So what can we do to take advantage of this, to enhance it? How do we water the flowers that we're growing? You know, how, do, how, do we, how do we nourish this little tree that we're, that we're uh, helping come into its more full form? There's a number of ways I just want to mention uh, to, uh, uh, for your consideration. These are not instructions. These are just considerations. One is to uh, either start to use or increase the use of this phrase, not now. So your mind starts to plan and you very gently, but quite firmly, not now. You're not saying you can never plan again, but not now, not now. There's that same thought pattern. You don't hate that thought pattern. You don't make up some story about yourself and what's wrong with you that maybe you can't do meditation or you start creating a whole uh, solving that you have these, these thought patterns. You just go, not now thought pattern, not now memory, not now problem, not now decision. Not now. You're cheerful about it. You're not. You, if, if, this, if this was the five-year-old that, that you really loved and they wanted to do something that they couldn't do right now, you wouldn't say, oh, you terrible five-year-old, I hate you. You'd go, no, not now. Not now. That same firmness but gentleness that, is, that it's required. Our minds actually appreciate that, although it doesn't necessarily feel it the first mm, 800 or 1,000 times you do it. <laughs> but eventually, you realize, oh, my mind really does appreciate this. It's really true. Whatever you have to go, maybe 750 or something on the downside, 950 on the upside to see for yourself. Get busy. 
So not now is one way to add momentum to our practice that's uh, not violent in any way. Another is slowing down, which is to double up on the continuity by slowing down. Slowing down would mean something different for each of us. So for you, it might be slowing down as you enter the hall, that you get a little rushed as you enter the hall, or as you're leaving the hall, you get rushed. Or it might be that you start to speed up around food. So can you slow down a little around food? Or being in your room, that you speed up in the room um, till I really get settled in, that's where I will tend to speed up. I get in that room and there's just me and my stuff, and therefore the stimulation of the stuff. And I'm so happy to be alone <laughs> that I will start to speed up <laughs> for that reason. So I've learned, you know, I've actually, from before I get to the door, I start rehearsing. <laughs> stay here, Philip, stay here. Don't go out. You can, as it came up in the hall this afternoon, you can do some sort of movement that uh, will help you uh, release any tension that's built up. We are asking for the walking practice because the walking practice is, is a part of the continuity. But we're not against, on this kind of a retreat, you taking a walk up into the hills that gets, gets your body to get to move, to get that energy out, to get this stuff out. At the, um, at the, I used to do uh, my walking, I would sit early and then during the sit before the talk at the forest refuge, this one retreat I was doing at the forest refuge, I would be in the dining hall alone because everybody else was doing the sitting. And I would just walk up and down so fast in this middle of this winter retreat because it was too cold to do this outside. I'd just go charging up and down by the tables. And it was so good because then for the rest of the evening, I had, uh, there had been this outburst of the energy and now the settling that can come. So there's nothing wrong with, with going off in the woods and uh, uh, dancing or as the person said this afternoon, uh, you can be a whirling dervish for a while out in the woods, that's okay. Or you're doing your yoga downstairs or whatever it is that helps for you, any kind of mindful movement. Another thing that you can do is... Uh, that you can uh, just slightly extend your sit. Just slightly extend. An extra five minutes or 10 minutes or 15. Uh, some people are, have extended the sit an extra 30 minutes. Uh, it, it depends on what's right for you. In my own development of this, five minutes was a lot when I first started doing this. And then, you know, 10 became possible. And by chance, I ended up sitting an hour and a half, no, more than that, 45, two hours and 15 minutes because I was sitting and I was so comfortable despite my body hurting, that my body was sheltered from the hurt, that I was sitting and uh, I sat during the walking period and then the teacher came back and I didn't want to get up once the teacher was sitting up there. So I just kept sitting and discovered I could do it. I was really amazed that with my body challenges that I could do that. And that's how I discovered I could do long sits, is I just sort of tried and, and could do it. You can also uh, 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 use uh, the, the uh, feelings of gratitude. You can do what's called gladdening the mind, 
We may get an experience of that tomorrow morning. This was referred to earlier, but this gladdening the mind, and I'll take you through before this is over, the whole sequence around gladdening the mind and why it's so powerful. You can also uh, uh, get up earlier in the morning and come in here a little early, or you could get up early and do a sit and before the, the early morning sit, or you can stay later, come to the, maybe you've been skipping the sit in the evening, the last sit, you can stay for that, or you can go rest for a while, come back, taking advantage of this momentum, but without grabbing at anything. Just what would happen if I were a little more available for practice? That's all. It's just a question. It's just a suggestion. There is no instruction in this. Likewise, you can include more of the heart space, the way we were doing this afternoon. Really cultivate your own heart space. And from that heart space, let the, the breath become the breath of the heart. So wonderful when we're in that heart space and we're breathing from the heart. Very, very beautiful and quieting, calming. When we have access, this may or may not be possible for you. You may or may not have had some feeling of that this afternoon. Likewise, we can remember to stop striving. Oh, I want to remember to stop striving. May I recognize striving when it appears. One way to do that is you can notice little small tensions in your mind. Little small tensions. Or little small tensions in your body, which coming from the mind. Like maybe the shoulders are just slightly raised. It's not like you're, but they're just slightly raised. Oh yeah, look at those shoulders. So you raise them deliberately. So now you're in your voluntary nervous system. Then you let them go. You're interested. You invite these small tensions in the mind to let loose these small tensions in the body. Are you pushing at things? Pulling? Remember the exercise with the hand? Pushing, pulling, squeezing. You, you, you feel that in the form of tension. There's a squeezing or a pushing at something. Pushing at trying to get something to happen or pulling at your mind in a jerky way to get it back to the object. And very important one is to laugh more. Laugh more. Because we're, you know, we're trying to align ourselves here and that there's something funny about that too. I mean, this, the human frailty, the human condition. So, uh, 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 continuing the tradition from last night of Sally talking about New Yorker cartoons, there was a recent New Yorker cartoon where the, there's these four ducks and they're all lined up in a perfect row. And one duck is saying to the other three, I still don't see what's so extraordinary about this. <laughs> I always have to wait on that joke because it takes a little moment, doesn't it? I'd, I'd like to say that deliberately, because see, that's part of what's funny. <laughs> mm. <laughs> we can remember to allow ourselves to feel the pleasure of seclusion, the pleasure of a stable mind, the, the pleasure of feeling aligned, having our ducks in a row. We can remember to allow that in because it is not attachment, this kind of wholesome pleasure. There's nothing grasping about it. If we get addicted to it, that's another matter. But this, that, that to have a wholesome state, there's joy in wholesome states. This embodied presence has this joy that Ajahn Suchito was uh, talking about in that retreat. 
And so we can let that in. And likewise, we can accept the truth of the roller coaster of our experience. Sometimes it's going great where there is some connecting and sustaining to the object or it's, we don't even need to bother to connect and sustain. It's happening automatically. And then whoosh, and then back up we go. The through line is the intention, not those ups and downs. Ups and downs are part of it. So all of these things is just suggestions as to things we might do. I want to, um, uh, rather than introduce a new topic tonight, I'm wanting to sort of work with what we've already created. And I'm going to be uh, highlighting various uh, points that we've touched on in some way. And um, hopefully they will be of some use to you, at least some pieces of it. One is this, um, this uh, looking at our patterns of why do we get, why do we get unconcentrated? Why do we get off? Like for you, what, what's your top three? Is it planning and fantasy? Is it as your body starts hurting? What is it that, what's your pattern? What, what's, your, what's your top three? You're not trying, you're not Sherlock Holmes here or uh, uh, some great scientist. You're just kind of noticing. You've had a, 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 you've got a lot of data points now, right? A lot of data points. Sat there a number of hours. So you kind of already know if you reflect on it. You know, yeah, this is just this pattern that I slide off. And so you might start to notice a little earlier, oh, here's the pattern. Here's the beginning of the end. <laughs> and laugh, just as I'm doing, and see if there's choice. Sliding off into one of those patterns is definitely dukkha. So is there a choice of, of non-suffering over suffering in this moment? Just interested. And in that way, applying this, these, these paramis, these uh, what I call attain, the attainments, but which are usually called perfections, uh, these, these attainments of the paramis of, of patience and persistence. But for this kind of practice, it requires so much patience, so much persistence. So when we see the pattern, we may need to bring up more patience or bring up more persistence. May, more, may I have more persistence here? Because, boy, this is really pulling me in. I, you know, I come back and it pulls me right back. May I have more persistence? Oh, I'm starting to rah, rah, rah. This was a bad idea of whatever. Oh, it's whatever. There's not enough time. I should have come for a month long of this kind of work, whatever it is. Oh, patient with oneself. One of the skills that, in theory, we develop as children, but which there's uh, a sort of mixed record of that, is delayed gratification. This comes about because of optimal frustration. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, that you, you want to have been a recipient of optimal frustration. So many riffs to go on in that. But I'm going to be serious here and stick to the subject. <laughs> Delayed gratification is actually gratifying in itself. It's not going well right now, and I'm going to patiently persist. That feeling, that alignment, is actually gratifying. You just have to try this to see. 
But you, this is not, they won't take you that long to see this. You have to do it a few times. It actually, an attitude of, of, of delayed gratification is rewarding. Somehow in our minds, this is, there's something that's satisfying to the mind about that when it knows that's what it's doing. It's, it's choosing delayed gratification because that's what's available to choose in this way. I just uh, offer that to you to see for yourself. At times, you know, we're further along in our practice. So this, uh, this applying, this vitaka, this vachara, this uh, sustaining, it's not such a big deal. And in fact, they may have dropped away. You're not really having to do that at all. That's when this inclining the mind really starts to be a viable thing. At first, there's a degree of deliberateness. This, this, is, this directed attention is just what it sounds like. We are directing attention. This aiming and sustaining has in it a, a bit of doing. It's a relaxed doing, but there's some doing in it. Inclining the mind doesn't feel like that. Uh, at the month long in March, I uh, talked about this a lot. For those of you who were there, maybe you'll remember this. The inclining the mind is subtle and soft. You just slightly incline. And the mind actually, like, uh, like a horse or any kind of animal, it, it likes that slight inclining. It responds much better than pushing it around or this heavy-handedness. Once it's become, has a degree of flexibility, a degree of stability, a degree of malleability, of softness. At that point, it really likes being inclined. And again, see this for yourself. When there's a degree of stability and the mind starts to go off, just incline it back. Or if the mind, if there's a degree of stillness there, incline it to more stillness. Just a little inclining to more steady, more still. So uh, our mind is so much more sensitive than we treat it. We treat it so coarsely that uh, we've, we've sort of trained in uh, a kind of coarseness of relationship with it. But in this practice, we really get to discover just how subtle and fine and sensitive it is and so sweetly responsive. I wanted to uh, 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 mention again the uh, Sally last night, and this uh, it was talking about the sutta. The sutta is describing uh, the the mind is malleable, uh, worldly, and steady. And the the words I had used in the introduction were slightly different, but meaning the same thing. So a malleable mind is a shapeable mind. It can shape, you can stay, you can, you can stay concentrated even though the conditions are a little odd. So there's a lot of pain. When the mind's got this kind of, of, of softness that it can be, that it can be shaped, it's, it's willing to be shaped with this gentle inclination. So you can sit with that pain and have a lot of concentration, a lot of collected and unification. But we have to notice that this quality is there in the mind. Oh yeah, my mind can actually do this right now. When we notice it, we then start to uh, sort of like put book bookmarks in our synapse structure in some way that it's more easy for us to come back to it. So noticing when the positive states of mind, 
rather than noticing the negative states of mind, the, the states of mind that we're not pleased with, but noticing when the mind has those characteristics that we appreciate, the recognition of that is, is uh, I would say, uh, at least equal and maybe a little more important at this stage in practice than noticing when the mind is struggling in some way. And this wildiness of mind, the wildiness means that the mind is flexible. It can take some disturbance. Uh, again, uh, this, uh, Sally was quoting me last night about not being disturbed by disturbances, not being perturbed by perturbance. Noticing this about the mind is really useful. I can't imagine a single person in this room has not already had some degree of experience of that. But I would guess that a significant number of you may not have noticed that. You would have been screaming at the top of your lungs and running out of here or taking all your clothes off and flipping out or something, had that not be true. The mind develops a kind of flexibility. It, otherwise it just couldn't do this work. But we so don't notice it. It bec- there's, a, there's an uh, equanimity there. A, the mind's equanimous, but that doesn't mean we notice the mind's equanimous because we're in the doing mode. So just open to that. And in the same way, this when the Buddha talks about steady, I refer to that as placeable, that you can place the mind on the breath and it stays there. You can place the mind on a certain aspect of the breath and it stays there. You can place the mind on gratitude and it stays there. You can, st- you can t- place the mind on contentment and it just stays and knows contentment. That's what the mind's knowing, is contentment. It's that cooperative because it's that sensitive. Act as though. Give it a lot of chances. Give it a lot of chances. So it doesn't take a bunch of times. You're just inviting it to happen. It's all practice anyway. So just act as though if you place your mind on the breath, it's going to stay there. If you go, oh, they've talked a lot about working with contentment, then just act as though and place your mind on, look for any feeling of contentment anywhere and place your mind, place attention, rest attention on contentment and see what happens. Do it many times. One, uh, one current that develops in these retreats that um, uh, I have a little dismay around is that people can start talking about first jhana, second jhana, all the jhanas. And they almost never come in to the the practice discussions and talk about access concentration. When uh, the original idea for this retreat was that we would help people be able to access access concentration, to cultivate access concentration. Because in the length of the retreat, this is doable. This This is quite doable. You know, it's like access concentration doesn't get any respect around here or something. (laughs) But the difference between access concentration and first jhana is a matter of degrees. And there's huge debate as to what those degrees are. Access concentration, the mind is secluded. The mind is secluded. The hindrances are present but 
the but the they are not so distracting that the mind loses its sense of presence. That continuity of awareness is there. That's why in Vipassana we can work with what's coming up because the mind is sufficiently secluded it doesn't get lost in it. So the jhana factors are present to some degree, and again depending on your definition of access concentration, to quite a significant degree in access concentration. There is, there's an applied, there's there's a sustained, there is some degree of of piti or some degree of sukha or or some degree of ekagata, one, two, or three, all three, two or three, they're they're there in access concentration. Rather than uh, worrying or trying to lean into that's that pushing or pulling uh, that we saw the folly of that. Oh, look at this. My mind has a degree of being sheltered. I'll hang out here. You stay available for further deepening, but you hang out here at this level of access concentration. You know when your mind's pretty stable. You know when oh, if something comes up and it, you don't, it doesn't hook you, that ordinarily would hook you, and here's another one and it doesn't hook you. You're, 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 not, you're not completely closed off, but here's all of these things coming up and they're not hooking you. That's access concentration. There's these, this term called dry and wet practice. Dry practice is when it's momentary concentration and there's not, the jhana factors aren't very strong. Oftentimes that's described as that there's no jhanas present. Others say, and I'm of this school, that, that in access concentration the jhana factors are present in such a way that the practice is wet. You have that advantage of the pleasure the contentment of mind and access concentration. That's why I'm uh, inviting you, uh, urging you to respect it and to be and uh, have more interest in it. And, you know, may I may I have access to access concentration? May access concentration arise? Be interested in that level. This this in between the momentary moment to moment concentration and these deep absorptions. This middle ground. The more familiar you become with that middle ground, the more likely you are to, in a healthy way, and a way that as allows repetition, uh, access the jhanas themselves. We can spend years trying to access the jhanas and miss this access concentration. That's, that's, that would not seem to me at least to be a wise use of time. And it's just not a smart way to get to the jhanas. We have, um, we have talked about these, uh, these jhanas, what are in the suttas are called jhanas in the Vasudhimaga, which we've referred to, this big thick textbook that was created later. They're called the Arupa jhanas. So they're, they, in, the, you know those four jhanas. But there's also what's called the formless jhanas or the immaterial jhanas that are these mind states that are where the mind is still secluded, but it's experiencing certain particular objects. And I didn't want you to leave here without having heard those, because later on you'd go, 
I went to that concentration retreat and they didn't even bother to mention it. <laughs> so here we are, covering our bases. <laughs> the first of these is called boundless space. And we access these from fourth jhana. So boundless space. And it's, it's having to do with spaciousness and accessing as your object space and the vastness, endless, uh, endless boundlessness, in, infiniteness of space. And then the same with consciousness. That consciousness can become the object. And again, there's a particular form of going through these where we, uh, we access this consciousness. These are very satisfying experiences when, when we have them. They are not liberating insight, however. They're not liberating insight. They're not freeing us from the poisons of greed, aversion, and delusion. So, boundless space, infinite consciousness, infinite space, infinite consciousness, and then what's called nothingness, which is um, uh, uh, almost impossible to try to explain, but is a, but is a state where when, when you go through that, you realize, oh, that's what they mean. <laughs> Until then. <laughs> and then beyond that, there's, there's the, the final of these uh, formless jhanas is something called neither perception nor non-perception. And uh, it is literally, it, it, you can't call it non-perception, but you can't call it perception either, because there's a kind of knowing that's there. There's, a, the, the, there's an awareness that's present, but it's not perceiving, but it is present. I don't know how to explain it any better than that. Again, it's one of these things that if you ever go there, you, you kind of recognize, oh, that's what they meant, or maybe that's what they meant, and so on and so forth. Uh, one usefulness of knowing about that is that in this world of samadhi, it goes on and on in terms of what can be known. In the Divine Comedy, uh, which is uh, an incredibly wonderful uh, description of a transformation, a journey of transformation and transcendence. Uh, just an amazing uh, vision in that way. Uh, uh, Dante has gotten lost in, the, in, the, in his middle years and goes in the dark forest. He's lost. And he gradually, after going through hell and then purgatory, uh, he, he comes out and he's in the heaven realm. And uh, it's dazzling. And there's one level of heaven after another after another. It's just dazzling. And what Dante says, though, is what was most amazing to him about it is that one could surpass the one, one could then the, that other was surpassed, and so on. That every being at every level was content at that level. There was no grasping, no wanting. There were, there were differences, but there was not discontent. So the experiences, the manifestations were different, but there was no discontent, no, no grasping. As we become uh, more able to find our own sense of contentment, our own sense of this kind of joy of the collected and unified mind, this, this, uh, the joy of embodied presence, 
It's like that. The, the grasping and the wanting uh, sort of starts to fall away, or you could say we mature beyond it through experience. So just to hold that as, as we're working with this and as you choose to work with it in the future if you do, that, there's, that this contentment is really deep-seated contentment as it matures. It does not, it, it moves away from the grasping mind because there's always something else to experience. If this were not true, there would be no possibility of freedom because always something else. A few of you uh, in uh, your uh, practice discussions have brought up various uh, altered state experiences that have happened to you. And I just want to acknowledge that as we get more samadhi, we will sometimes, and the same person won't always, and you won't have the same experience, and some people have none, we have all sorts of altered mind states that come up. Those altered mind states can be spontaneous visualizations, Again, that this mysterious crossroads in the poem of the senses, that's part of the reason I chose that poem, be there at the mysterious crossroads of the senses. They, there can be, uh, they just where they come from, I would have my view about this, but that's not important. You can have a very strong visualization. That's part of the dropping in, that these things will arise. You can have also various kinds of auditory experiences, some that where uh, they can be disquieting around voices or something, or there can be voices that are not disquieting. Or uh, one time I had this uh, heightened auditory experience that was the most beautiful auditory experience of, of my life. It was just, it was an amazing experience. I had uh, had a decrease in my visual field. Uh, and, and, I, and it all went into the auditory and was quite amazing. But it was just a mind state. All of these are just mind states. All mind states are, uh, are aggregate in nature. All mind states arise and pass. So we don't get hold of it. You can have an auditory change in terms of an auditory. You can have an alternate state in relation to smells. You, can, you become very sensitive to smell. You can also, there's a kind of... Um, a blossom of a contented mind that sometimes in this, I guess they call it, we'd call it synthesia, synthesia in, in, in regular science, but that you, you can actually smell. It's, it's, it's this beautiful smell that can sometimes arise just from the sitting. The mind is content and we experience it as a smell. Uh, uh, you can have... Uh, uh, various kinds of body sensations arise of all sorts, from having bugs crawling all over you to, to having shaking and that kind of thing happen. You can have um, a kind of body sensations that are healing in nature. You can feel your body healing and sitting. Um, Joseph uh, used to say, Joseph Goldstein used to say, that some of his best body work occurred when he was sitting still in meditation. And it's really true. It's really true. I, when I was sitting with a pilot at the, a couple of years ago, and one sit, these little like mini robots started working on my shoulder that had been hurt. 
And I could sit there and feel the change happening in my shoulder. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't even interested. I wasn't even thinking about my shoulder. I was very inspired by the practice. And yet this, this thing occurred. I've had a number of things like that occur. I was not all that concentrated. It was not that I was the most perfectly concentrated person in the least, but I was content. The mind had a lot of contentment. It had a lot of gladness. It had a lot of um, inspired feeling to it without grasping. And that contentment of mind, as the mind started to drop in for reasons that are mysterious, that's the mysterious crossroads of the poem, then something changed, something altered. You can also have, uh, in this, this uh, way, as dropping in to all of this, incredible experiences of all sorts around stillness. Stillness is one of the ones that is uh, more readily available than maybe we take advantage of it. So uh, tonight, when you come back for the final sit, which we will be counting heads, just joking. <laughs> we, <laughs> when, when, you, when you do your next sit, get interested. And tomorrow, be interested when there's stillness in the mind. Any degree of stillness. Now the mind may be fretting away or worrying about something, but there's also some place that's still. Pour your attention over, take, like you've got this bowl of attention, this water bowl that's filled with little drops of attention. Pour the attention on the stillness. Don't pour it on the worry. Don't pour it on, on the, the, the fretting, the, the regret, the fear. Pour it into the stillness, or pour it on the gratitude. Pour it where there's something you wish to nourish. You've only got so much attention. You've got this bowl, but it's a limited amount of bowl of these little droplets of attention. Choose wisely where you would pour it. There is also something that's, that's uh, called the Vipassana Jhanas. By, uh, that's a term that was uh, uh, invented by one particular teacher in Southeast Asia. And it refers to how in, you could call it access concentration, or one could argue in the first jhana, the mind is so secluded that the jhana factors are really strong, and yet you can, you can work through what's called the progress of insight. You can have this series of insights that, that comes from that. There's been various ways this is taught. Some people say that we, do, we practice Vipassana from the first jhana, or some people will say even from the fourth jhana, and all sorts of different descriptions about that. But there is, in fact, the, when the, more, the more steady the mind, the more, the more there's this equanimity really strong, the more we have access to seeing the things that lead to the freedom of the mind. And there is a kind of uh, uh, start, stop, re, you know, regress and all of this, but there is a kind of path through. You could even uh, view it that way in relation to the Eightfold Path in that way. But there's these, this, this, the, the mind really being strongly put together in, in, in this way that, that we're working, really makes a difference, whatever word you want to use to describe it. 
And some of you have known that on your Vipassana retreats already. So that too is to be taken into consideration. Another thing, um, you know, we, we talk about uh, these characteristics of these jhanas. But it's a little, when you actually look at the text, it's a little more puzzling than, uh, than it, it first comes out. We have, um, let me check something here. In in the in the in the first jhana, the the um, the benefit is because the mind is secluded. That's the same benefit in access concentration. It's just it's more intense. It's so much more intense that you feel a kind of dropping. There's a, in access concentration. There's one dropping. At least that's the way I would often experience it. It can be come on very slow, so you don't necessarily notice it. But then there's, it's like it drops in another level at, at, at access concentration. But it's the seclusion, this thing of noticing seclusion. But then in the second jhana, the, 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 the benefit of the second jhana, with the stilling of thought and examination, this applied and, and sustained you know, attention, uh, she enters and abides in the second jhana, which is characterized by rapture and pleasure, born of concentration. Sally read this last night. Born of concentration. So this pleasure is not coming because the mind is simply sheltered. It's now become, unif- become really concentrated. This collected mind has become highly collected, highly concentrated in that way. And so... Th- this is, that's just worth noticing. I'll just have you remember that for your, your future. That it's the seclusion versus the concentration. Not to be figured out, but just so that you have it in there. And then, uh, and the third jhana, with the fading away of rapture, she abides in equanimity, mindful and clearly aware, feeling pleasure with the body. He enters and abides in the third jhana. Because the jhanas are so often taught from the Vasudhimaga, there's a difference in the suttas and the Vasudhimaga. Because in the Vasudhimaga, they're saying, oh, that you don't have any body awareness. But in the suttas, you do. So there's some, there's, there's, there's a wide range. That's what I would want you to know. Because we can so want to understand well, exactly what they mean, what exactly who means. There's not a single person to know who that means. I tend to go with suttas. Others tend to go with the Vasudhimaga, but and that's that's just I, I just I, I place more of my trust on the suttas, so that is the way I the way I lean. In the fourth jhana, with the abandoning of pleasure and pain. Pleasure and pain, because sukha, that third jhana, has a lot of pleasure in it. So it's being abandoned. And there's reasons uh, for that. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain, and with the previous disappearance of joy and grief, he enters and abides in the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure, and purity of mindfulness and equanimity. This ekagata uh, has a kind of, of, of 
equanimity. That so we talk about one pointedness, but it's one pointed equanimity. And uh, someone today was uh, was talking about this in their experience. It is not accurate to call that equanimity pleasant. It is not accurate. It's not a. It does not capture it. It is not pleasant, but it's certainly not unpleasant. This fourth jhana, and even this factor of the of of when there's that one pointedness, some of this feeling will start to emerge. It's it's off the spectrum of pleasant and unpleasant. It's not on that spectrum. It's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. What I found fascinating about this is because of the four foundations of mindfulness, the second foundation of mindfulness describes things as either pleasant or unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Those of you with enough experience have heard this over and over again, Vedna, meaning either pleasant or unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. People, uh, people often describe that in teaching the, fourth, the, the four foundations as, oh, it's bored, it doesn't get your attention. But from my own practice experience, that surface level of neither pleasant nor unpleasant is actually rooted in this fourth jhana. That's mysterious. That's mysterious. And that makes neither pleasant nor unpleasant much more interesting. Right? I can see on your faces that, that the interest in that. Why am I saying this now? Because if I were sitting out there at various times in my practice, I would really have appreciated somebody saying this. I would have been clapping or something, because that's the kind of interest I have. My mind has this kind of interest. But for all of us, here we are with the breath. We're looking for the pleasure of the breath. We're learning to love the breath. But also, another way that we experience the breath is as neither pleasant nor unpleasant deeply satisfying. Neither pleasant nor unpleasant is like the uh, epitome, the epicenter, the apex of contentment. Because you're off the whole samsaric circle. Neither pleasant nor unpleasant in this profound level. In my practice experience, at least, I only offer this from my experience. And so sometimes the, the way the breath is, uh, can be known, that contentment, uh, we, we, we're not looking for our, our preconceived idea of, of the, this happy breath. The happy breath, has a, it's, it's more profound, it's more subtle. It's this more subtle level of mind. This more subtle level of mind. So these are, um, these are various reflections uh, for you in terms of... of the further exploration and the midst of our momentum here. Uh, with um, with um, I haven't I haven't decided till this very moment if I'm going to do this or not. So I'm you're watching me decide in real time. Am I going to offer this or not? Let's try it. So uh, sit up straight, but be very comfortable. Close your eyes. And let's imagine that we're practicing for access concentration. We're not trying to get into a jhana. 
we're utilizing the jhana factors for access concentration. So here we are, from the momentum of our practice, we move attention to the breath. We take that large bowl of droplets of attention and we're pouring all of those droplets of attention. We're getting very wet with attention, this juicy attention, this, this uh, uh, nourishing attention of the mind, this subtle mind, so sensitive this mind, and it's touching, it's, it's massaging like that temple described in that kneading or sally of the kneading of the bread, and that first jhana feeling. We're really, it's wet, we can move it, this malleable, flexible, placeable feeling comes because it gets so soft, pouring attention on it. Just pouring attention onto this breath. We notice maybe that the breath has a certain sweet taste to it. Or that the nostrils have a little bit of heat from the breath. There's a little bit of, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's arousing, it's got a kind of uh, uh, stimulation that feels so wholesome. It feels generative. We keep pouring attention, pouring these droplets of attention on it. And then we momentarily notice, oh, there is this momentum of this tension is just pouring. It's pouring and it's pouring. I've got this applied and sustained. It's just now happening. Oh, and I can feel in this sweetness of this breath, this little, the little, that little exhilaration, this little exuberance of the breath. I feel the PT there at the nostrils. Or maybe for you, it's a little warmth in the belly. Or maybe it's the whole body's got a little electrical feeling. There's the PT, small, but here it is. Just now, quickly. And that sweetness of that taste and that smell, or this kind of really quietness. Ah, there's the sukha. There's the sukha. Oh, and the, it's hard to feel the sukha through the piti, but if I, if I just shift my attention, I get a little glimpse of it. It's kind of being shy, but I can feel it. And there's a one-pointedness on the breath. It's not so prominent or anything. Oh, there's the five. Oh, my mind is settling into access. Mm. And there's a contentment. I'm very content with what I have. The mind is satisfied because its sensitivity is being recognized, reflected, cultivated. This goes on for a moment or two. And we notice we've settled in and this, this effort of applying, this pouring those droplets of attention over and over, both kinds have dropped away. 
There's no effort at all, just here with the breath. Resting, resting attention. It's placeable, it's just placed on the breath and it stays. No extra effort, no effort. The momentum, the mind is satisfied where it is, so it's self-perpetuating in its momentum. Feel the satisfaction of this concentration. Mm. More than secluded now. Everything's a little more enhanced. The PT is more enhanced. You feel that electrical surge a little more, maybe a little more rushing, or the body's a little lighter. Or... Mm. But it's strong and it's coarse, this PT. And you realize, yeah, that's, it is, it's exciting, it's exuberant, but it's, it is kind of rough now that I notice that it's rough. Oh, well, is there something that I could more directly access that's not so rough, that really gives the mind what it wants, that gives the heart what it wants? Oh, if I drop any interest, I take away all interest in that exuberance, completely let it go, what's left? Oh, this sweetness, this very quietness, Call it happy if that's your word. Call it joy if that's a word. It's so tender. It's much more refined. Oh, it's like a very fine fabric. It's like a soft breeze, a stroke of the cheek. This gentleness of it, so satisfying. So much contentment. Mm. Mm. Just this quiet breath. The mind, the mind is knowing itself. That's why it loves the breath. That's why the breath is so beautiful. Because the mind is seeing itself, its true nature. Oh. After a period of time, as sweet as it is, as satisfying it is, you begin to notice that yes, although it's quiet and it's sweet, there is some friction. There's some friction. There's some degree of, even here, a kind of coarseness. It's so subtle, this coarseness, but is there something that would be more matching the true nature of mind? What would happen if I let loose of any interest in this sukha? And I drop interest, you drop interest, we drop interest in the sukha, and it falls away. And all that's left is this one-pointed equanimity. One-pointed here and now totally equanimous. And you discover, oh, 
this is the nature of the mind. The mind doesn't experience the pleasant or unpleasant in its own nature. It's got a satisfaction that's other. It's got a well-being that's other. It's the ego-wanting mind that likes all that coarseness, those other kinds of pleasant. This is so deeply satisfying. This is like coming home. This one-pointed, empty equanimity. Quiet, still, here, now. You might want to sit for a few minutes before you move, or you might want to take a walk and come back for the last sit, or go sit in your room, or come early tomorrow to sit, to open to this unfolding of this kind of experience. Allowing yourself to be available to what comes to you. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.